This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. And if you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and rate and review us on your podcasting app. The Catalyst String Quartet a year ago launched a new series to commemorate black composers. It's called Uncovered. They've just released the second in that series, and it celebrates the chamber music of Florence Price. And this is pretty exciting because they literally did go and have to uncover some of her pieces. Some have never been recorded before, which appear on this new release. You'll find out about that and much more from violist Paul Araya on new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm talking with the violist of the Catalyst String Quartet, Paul Araya. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Oh, thanks for having me. The Catalyst String Quartet has just released the second volume in your series of recordings commemorating black composers. And this one concentrates on the chamber music of Florence B. Price. And she's recognized as the first female African-American composer to gain national attention. Why is that? Well, the the traditional story is that she won uh, this big competition in Chicago after having moved straight from Little Rock. So she won this big competition, and as a result, the conductor of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, her music sort of came to his attention, and so he programmed her first symphony as a part of this big festival. And so um, in that way, she sort of became the first landmark female, actually one of the first female composers, not to mention a a female composer of color, to um, sort of have an accolade like that. Is there more to that story? You said the traditional story is this. Do you feel like there's more to that story? Well, the reason I say it like that is because sometimes I wish that the narrative surrounding these composers, especially the historically important black composers, was a little bit more focused on the how incredible their entire life stories were and not just the one sort of, you know, quick tweet headline that we can say about them. You know, the same thing for Joseph Boulogne, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. You know, his nickname was Black Mozart and Samuel Corge Taylor, they call him the Black Mahler. And I just think that we're doing a little bit of disservice by not um, promoting the fuller narrative about these composers' lives. And so although that was a really important moment in history for her and for our entire nation, um, she had already accomplished a bunch of different firsts and, and, and she, her output, the output of her music over her entire lifetime was really impressive and incredible. So despite her music not really being performed as much as it should have been, I mean, for a woman in her position, she was performed a lot and she was very well known in her time. But in terms of her contributions to the entire American classical music landscape, she was sort of shut out of the system. You know, there uh, very famously, she wrote to um, Kutsevitsky, who was the uh, conductor of the Boston Symphony, maybe four or five times over the course of her lifetime. These like sort of like really well written and sort of like sort of imploring him to take a look at her scores, like from a merit based. You know, she didn't want any, you know, special attention. Like, she just wanted a chance, and she really never really got that chance. 
And that's why it's also it's so fulfilling that we're finally in the year where you know the Philadelphia Orchestra um, Deutsche Grammophon CD came out with the two Florence Price uh, symphonies. We were able to release all of this chamber music, which four of these works have never been recorded. And two of them, I'm pretty sure most people cannot even find that they exist on the internet. piano quintet and the Negro folk songs in counterpoint which often get confused with the five folk songs in counterpoint but she wrote actually wrote two sets and one of them just hasn't been republished since her time yet all right we're going to dig in more into those pieces but first I want to talk a little bit about the significance of the title of this series you call it uncovered as opposed to rediscovered or any other word you might come up with. Why did you choose the title Uncovered for this series? Well, we thought back in 2018 when we were actually formulating this entire project, we had thought very, very long and hard about that title. And for us, we we felt that it best described the, the, the reality that these composers' music never went away. It's just that we needed to sort of focus and attention back onto them. Um, and so the uncovered is the fact that the music was always there under the surface in terms of like receiving the kind of national attention and access to scores, access to recordings. And that by sort of lifting this veil, this sort of veil off of them. And actually in, in the cases of some of these works, the, like the Florence Price works, I mean, there was a little bit of uncovering and sort of like detective work style stuff going on in the terms that we had to go to the actual library in Arkansas and like collect these manuscripts in order to make this recording because um, the publishing companies that own the rights right now just aren't um, pumping out the music in the f- fast enough for how we feel that it needs to be heard. I want to talk a little bit about how this series got started. From what I read, it was inspired out of a summer chamber program at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia, and some of your fellow faculty members kept bringing in repertoire that was hard to find, and you guys decided, let's remedy this. Is that kind of how it happened? Can you tell us more about that? Exactly. Yeah, I'll I'll elaborate on that. So we, my string quartet, the Catalyst Quartet, have been faculty members of the Sphinx Performance Academy for nearly a decade. Now, um, for anybody who's not familiar with uh, the Sphinx organization, they're a national organization that is devoted to increasing diversity in classical music, and specifically the participation from Black and Latinx communities. So they held a string competition that started in like the late 90s. That's actually how my quartet was formed. We're mostly alumni of that competition. And so um, as part of Sphinx's, you know, development programs, we eventually became faculty for these young musicians, these high school aged string players. And we run that string quartet intensive, the Sphinx Summer Performance Academy. And so In addition to um, the Catalyst Quartet being on faculty, there's also another string quartet that is made up of our friends and colleagues from around the country. And literally over the course of the last 10 years, they have been bringing in, each individual 
have been bringing in very, you know, to us at the time seemed like eclectic works, but extremely relevant for the um, for our students, right? To be able to see and hear composers that reflected their experiences and their cultures. And so that was a really nice thing. And I think it just sort of on tw at, by 2018, it finally dawned on us. We I guess we had already always thought back in 2010 that eventually more attention would come to these pieces. That because, well, I mean, why wouldn't they? They were really amazing, excellent pieces. Um, and by 2018, I think we were finally fed up. We had heard so many great performances and thought, you know, sort of mused over this question of when is it going to happen for so long that we were like, oh, I see. Like, you need to be the change you want to see sometimes. And so we just collectively knew that it was time to stop asking ourselves when and just say that now is the time. And and also especially important to us was that we were able, that we were going to do it on the highest level so that we could give access to really convincing recordings and a sort of like a network of information on like how to find the right notes, how to find the scores, all these things so that other people that have probably been asking themselves the same question all these years will feel empowered to program and to play this music as well. Paul, you mentioned that you and your colleagues had to access this music through handwritten scores that you found in the library. I'm curious, what did you discover about Florence Price as you were reading through those scores? Yeah, okay, well, the first obvious one, which is kind of sad that it had to be like this way, is that at first when we were playing off of the um, sort of like hand-me-down, like published scores, um, we found out that a lot of the very strange notes and stuff that we thought were sort of like flavors of unique, quirky flavors of Florence Price ended up just being straight up wrong notes when we went back to the, because she was actually very meticulous in her handwritten things. No wrong notes, um, just really, really complex, beautiful, but entirely functional and correct harmony and counterpoint. And so the fir very first thing we learned is that um, she was really a type A, and and if if anybody's playing a Florence Price piece right now, and they're like, oh, my score says, I'm not so sure about this funky note doesn't sound that good, it's probably not the right note. <laughs> because she was very meticulous, and she, I, as far as we know, she was not a big, um, she didn't write that kind of stuff on purpose. So are you saying that when they published her music, they got it wrong? Is that what I'm hearing you say? What I'm, I think what, I, not to put any blame on publishers, I think the current trend with Florence Price's music is to stay exactly true to a certain source. And I think that through the grapevine of, because in her time she was, they were only hand copying, even there was hand copies of hand copies. And so I think sometimes if you go to the, not to the original, original source that you, the most original source, this sort of second or third source, there have there have been some human copyist flaws, and they made their ways into the 2010, 2020 editions. Gotcha. Thank you for clarifying that. Just as on your first recording in this series, your second one features a guest, and you've invited pianist Michelle Kahn to join you, and she's featured on a couple of pieces. Can you tell us a little bit about her, please? Oh, she's just incredible. Um, 
uh, a consummate chamber musician as well as having all of the um, incredible facilities and musical um, intellect of solo. And in addition to all of that, she also separately was taking up her own sort of mission with the music of Florence Price. And, you know, all the experiences that she can bring as her as a woman of color, um, as somebody that has been able to play a, a huge range of her piano works, which Florence Price was primarily a keyboardist. She was an organist, but also, you know, she wrote a lot of piano music. And so being able to have that perspective actually was a really great thing for us, even for all the, for us to play all the other pieces that didn't have piano. For instance, like in rehearsal one day, we were working on the Juba movement of the long piano quintet in A minor. And we were asking Michelle what her take was on swinging some of the rhythms. Because for all the listeners out there who aren't familiar with Florence Price's style of Juba dance, she sort of uses the Juba dance, which is an, an African-based uh, dance that was based off of like hand padding and stomping and all these things, very rhythmic. Uh, to the to the non-expert, it can sound like ragtime, which it is not. It is not ragtime. What it is is that the Juba dance shares a similar lim- lineage with ragtime music. So it, it, in, immediately you'll get a very American, Americana sense from listening to the Juba movements. But Michelle was telling us, you know, for instance, that we needed to listen to the Nathaniel Dett version to get the idea of what, what was in Florence Price's ears when she was thinking of writing Juba music. And so little insights like that were a really um, nice addition to our collaboration. Cool. And the Juba dance, of course, seems to be a signature sound for Florence Price. We hear it in many of her works, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and most of her big works, um, she includes it. And it's, I mean, she does it great. I like to say that they're especially powerful because we as American listeners can, it's so immediately American, that sound, you know, it's, um, but, and the way she does it, it's classical, yet it's also so much fun. It's, I think it's really nice because, you know, Polish people get to hear the Polonaise, you know, when, you know, like the style, a stylized dance movement that is taking up such a big role in a cla- in a big classical sonata work. It's nice to have an American version of that. Michelle Kahn is also featured on the piano quintet in E minor. Can you talk a little bit more about this work and at what point in her career did Florence Price write it? Yes, okay, this is a loaded question because this is probably the most mysterious work on the album. So the internet believes that the piece that we recorded is the piano quintet in E minor, but it in all of likelihood is not. And now unfortunately there's not enough detailed scholarship about Florence Price's life to know any of this for sure, because the record, there is a record of the piano quintet in E minor having existed and there's a performance, but this little short piano quintet, as far as the sources that we were able to find, we do not have any sort of scholarly timeline information about it. So we can only go off of what we know musically. We know 
that each of the three movements is not in the same key. And anybody listening will be very uh, intrigued to listen to the, the tonality of these movements. It's almost Straussian. Lots of complex chords, um, augmented harmonies, diminished harmonies, very sort of back and forth key centers. Did I already mention that each movement is in a different key? That's not a, a typical trademark of Florence Price's middle works. And so the best guess that we have is that it was a sort of later work where she finally felt the freedom to sort of experiment a little bit more in, you know, modernism. Um, because she, from, from at least from everything that I read, when she was young, which was before when she moved to um, Chicago, she had most of her success right when she moved to Chicago in, the, in that decade, in the 30s. That's when she wrote all of her... Um, symphonies and big chamber music and piano um, concertos but all of that music developed a very distinct afro flavor because I think that she had sort of found a voice for herself and so the best guess that we have is that the little piano quintet is from later in her life at a, at a time when she felt sort of free more free What a great thing to think about, feeling free, huh? The string quartet in G major is just two movements. It's unfinished. Why do you think it's unfinished? Uh, yeah, this is another uh, one where we have to put on our detective hats or sort of there's a lot of guesswork involved with this because it was written in 1929 as far as the sources that we know and so we have to ask ourselves she had plenty of time she lived another you know 20 something years she had plenty of time to come back and finish it but she chose not to so my best guess because the um the g major string quartet is a little bit more simplice it's a little bit more in the germanic in the vein of Haydn in the um very, very strict forms, not necessarily such... For instance, there's no Juba dance, right? So it, it kind of, it's reflective of an earlier period of hers. My best guess is that when she moved to Chicago and she was taking in all of those experiences, meeting all those incredible people, Langston Hughes, Marian Anderson, that she sort of maybe just had a sort of renaissance and decided that, you know, I like what I wrote in the string quartet in G major, but I'm gonna, if I'm going to write more string quartet, I might as well just, you know, go in a new direction. That's my guess. That's a pretty good guess. And also the, the piece works very, very nicely with just the two movements. And so there was probably a part of her too that was like, oh, I think this is, this is enough.
There are five folk songs in Counterpoint for String Quartet, written in 1951, just two years before Florence Price's death. And these pieces demonstrate her varied strengths as a composer. I mean, the idea that her music is very deep with lots of layers and harmonic textures, yet the tune, the melody, is still very present. Can you talk a little bit about what we hear in these songs? Yeah, well, I think you said it very nicely. Um, I think the only thing I will add to what you said that's especially incredible is there have been many composers that have been able to pull off sort of academic feats, like combining, weaving folk songs into each other. But the way that Florence Price does it, I'm going to reiterate, is that it, it's so emotional. It's such a journey that you you almost lose the fact that um, there's... that. We're being sort of formally limited by by sort of contrapuntal structures that every entrance also gives you an emotional there's an emotional aspect and a conversational aspect to every one of the entrances and every one of the voices that sort of takes us with a through line. And in the case of the five folk songs, I think there's even a through line throughout the entire work. So they're not just a collection of five disparate folk songs, but rather you get a feeling of of a big work, sort of like her A minor um, string quartet. Even though it's not in that particular setup, it's a five movements, we feel this sort of journey going all the way through. Um, especially because the the third movement is, you know, a slow movement. It's a chorale. It's really gorgeous, and I think it sort of serves as an emotional center point. The fourth movement. is almost in a similar character as a Juba dance. It's very sparkly, it's full of energy. And then the last movement sort of brings extra gravitas. I think I wrote this in my notes that it's, I think it's super suiting that the last piece of chamber music for the strings that we know of that she wrote was Swing Low Sweet Chariot. Um, I just think, and it's especially one of her most densely written movements. Also, not only does she bring the gravity of the actual tune to to the movement, 
Um, she brings some really, really extracurricular style, um, like, inversions. And, like, the technical devices that she uses are really impressive. It's such, so much so that when you first sit down and try to read this piece as, like, um, you know, any string quartet that's interested in reading this movement, it can be really daunting. It can almost sound Ivesian. But when you can sit down, actually in her manuscript, she actually writes out when certain places where you're like, oh my God, I don't know what to listen to, like what's happening. She actually, in her manuscript parts, writes, you know, oh, this one's an inversion. This one's a retrograde motion. This one's this and this. And then you can start putting that together and you start clearing out the textures. And it's, it's a really fascinating journey. And it's really cool to see like the sort of brain trip that Florence Price was on at the very end of her days of writing chamber music. I love hearing your enthusiasm about this. <laughs> Getting your hands in it and everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's also a set of spirituals. She titled them Negro Folk Songs in Counterpoint for String Quartet. These again are familiar melodies and she takes us on quite a journey. Go Down Moses leads off this set, and the melody is literally interwoven into the string quartet textures, and then it kind of gets passed around. Can you talk a little bit more about that, and then maybe at this set uh, in its broader context? Yes. So this set shares a lot of similarities with the um, five folk songs, but the big difference being that all of these are very specifically um, spirituals, but the, de the sort of like structural devices that she uses, the fact that it's, it's sort of these developing fugues that sort of like go into these huge development sections and then bring us with an emotional context, bring us, that is very similar to the five folk songs. The big difference I would say is that this set, the smaller set, each movement is sort of much shorter and they all, they're driven and they're exciting. little bit less structurally developed, they're a little bit more virtuosic, they're a little bit more exciting. And you sort of they sort of take you to the punchline sooner. kind of hard to put into words so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to everybody out there being able to listen to the two and sort of de develop their own opinions on the differences because I think when you listen to them you can definitely get a flavor you can get a flavor difference probably due to the fact that you know she wrote them at different times in her life That set, the Negro Folk Songs, is my favorite set to perform because I think that the impact that they have is so direct and it shows off so much compositional prowess. 
melody, for harmony, for, you know, obviously counterpoint, and also for the emotional qualities. Paul, as the violist in the Catalyst Quartet, that inner voice, what do you most appreciate about the chamber music of Florence Price? Well, the first thing of note about the chamber music of Florence Price, and I'm hoping to do more research about this actually as a personal project, because doing Florence Price research is, is really, it's kind of hard because the internet doesn't have, we're so used to being able to find everything on the internet. You have to go to a lot of hand copy books and you actually like, I think I'm gonna have to like call up her um, her daughter and her relatives and stuff to find out just why did she love the viola so much? Because the viola parts in these pieces are incredible. And not only that, they're really, really hard. Like, I don't say that in a complaining way. I say that it's like, it's a really cool thing. They're actually very virtuose. Like, I'm convinced that she must have known a violist in her life that was like just an incredible, like virtuoso player. There's like all these crazy double stops. There's um, high fast notes. Like, and you know, not, not to like make a viola joke here, but a lot of composers like that. <laughs> When they're thinking about writing that stuff, that's the first violin that they're thinking of, you know? Especially for like regi high register stuff that easily any of the other two violins could take in a more natural register. So she was intentionally going out of her way to show off some viola. And I think maybe she had an infatuation with the soulful sound of the viola because there's also a lot of times where, you know, other composers would give the cello, the, you know, the, the really beautiful, like low singing stuff. And the viola just gets it so much. So that's another cool thing to listen out for in all of this music is the fact that like, she loved the viola and it has a lot to do. Paul, what else would you like us to know about this project? Anything that we have not talked about yet? Um, I, the one thing I guess I'll mention is that how sort of proud and happy I am to see that, you know, and it's obviously it's in conjunction with a lot of other world events, but that people are finally, other people, musicians, presenters that have sort of been long been like the vanguards of only Beethoven and, uh, you know, Schubert and such, are finally coming around to programming some of this music that we've recorded. Um, and that just feels amazing. And I just hope that that keeps going. And I think that as long as more people continue to add on to what we're doing, because um, the goal is not for, for our recording to be the only set and the definitive set. The goal is for this music to have as many interpretations as Beethoven gets and as Schubert gets and as Brahms gets, because the music is so dense, it can be interpreted in so many ways that it deserves a collective effort in order to move us closer to having better, stronger interpretations of her music and for her music to be more widely available and more known.
violist Paul Araya talking about their new recording featuring chamber music by Florence Price. It's the second volume in their series, Uncovered, featuring the Catalyst String Quartet. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for New Classical Tracks. I'm Julia Macher, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. Thank you.